This is Bianca Mitchell with Generation Justice. I am speaking with Mark Rudd, retired math professor and lifelong organizer. Mark, welcome to Generation Justice. Thank you for having me, Bianca. I really appreciate it. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm 71 and a half years old, and uh, (laughs) um, I've been in Albuquerque for 40 years. Uh, Before that, I was a federal fugitive. I'm working backwards now. Uh, Wanted for a a variety of charges that have to do with uh, opposing the Vietnam War. Uh, And then before that, I was a student organizer at Columbia University from starting from 1965 to 1968 when they kicked me out. So I guess uh, I've been... A lifelong organizer, and I'm I'm happy to see it, uh, various mass movements developing now. When did you first start getting involved with social justice? I turned 18 in um, June of 1965. The United States invaded Vietnam in April and May, or March and April of 1965. So, just at that moment when I left home and and went to college, that was the moment of the the big jump. In, in the involvement uh, in the war in Vietnam. So I was 18 years old. And I immediately uh, met people at Columbia University who were already organizing against the war. And they were really incredibly smart people, really exciting people. Uh, and they were learning about what the war was about. You know, was it a mistake or was it part of some terrible policy? The latter, actually, is what, what they concluded. And um, and they were also were dedicated to building a movement, meaning a lot of people, uh, to stop the war. The strategy was to politicize the campus, to to raise the issue of war of the war, and to educate people. In so doing, now also um, that was the, uh, the era of the civil rights movement, and so um, most of us were white, but we we dedicated ourselves to supporting the civil rights movement, and we saw the war in Vietnam and racism at home as one. So eventually, we developed issues at Columbia University uh, involving. Um, the university's involvement with the war and also uh, its expansion into the Harlem community. That all came to a head in the spring of 1968 with an occupation of five buildings, uh, one of them uh, by black students. And I I was at that time the chairman of the uh, Columbia chapter of Students for Democratic Society, SDS. Who were your mentors? They were actually people just a little older than I. Graduate students. At that time, graduate students were very involved uh, with undergraduates. I think it's less common now. I I think I I was only like 18, 18, 19, 20 years old. I didn't think much of old people. I didn't think that they had accomplished very much. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's kind of similar now. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, What did you love the most about your early days as an organizer? What fed your soul? Well, I love I love the idea of meeting and and developing strategy with other people, you know, and 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 hashing out ideas for what needs to be done. And then, secondly, I love putting a plan into effect. We go out and knock on doors in the dormitory and and ask people their feelings about Vietnam and and try to educate. 
Um, also, um, there'd be occasionally uh, we'd plan a confrontation over something like a, a CIA recruiter coming to campus. And so we'd then have demonstrations and, and one thing might lead to another and the, uh, uh, we'd get into a conflict with the administration. So that was good. I, I, love, the, I love the idea of, 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 of working with others and developing strategy. What makes you cringe when you think about your early days as an organizer? What makes me what? Cringe, uncomfortable. Sexism. Ah. Oh. Sexism. The the fact that most of the people, not all, but most of, of of my closest comrades were male, and that we didn't recognize the leadership of women. Um, now, it actually seems like it's all women. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Deb Haaland and mm-hmm. Sochil Torres Small is amazing to have two non-white women out of three uh, uh, Congress people. Yeah. It's just fabulous. Did you ever take any risks that you later wish you hadn't? Oh, lots of risks. All the way from confrontations with the police. Um, well, subsequent to Columbia, I got involved in, in, in national SDS, Students for a Democratic Society. And... We developed a, a crazy idea, which was that this country was going to ha- have a revolution and that we would not have government by corporations, but government by the people. And so uh, I became a follower of um, Che Guevara in Cuba. And Che had put forward a, a strategy <clears throat> which we adopted, but but in retrospect, it was a terrible strategy. It was to begin armed struggle with the hopes that people would join uh, us. And um, it, it sounds kind of dumb now, <laughs> but we, we did that. We started bombings, and, and, and um, I, I became a federal fugitive. Uh, um, I was a fugitive for seven and a half years. So I, I guess you might say I took some risks, yeah. Um, did your family support your organizing efforts? Yes and no. They were terrified for me. And they were terrified about what would happen. And my mother hated the idea that I was thrown out of Columbia uh, because she wanted me to uh, get an education. And um, also, I was drafted right away to to go into the Army. Uh, I beat that. Uh, by telling them I was a communist and I wanted to go into the military to organize. So they gave me a mental discharge. But um, my my parents, they were terrified for me. They did not agree with what I was doing. But blood is pretty strong in my family. Let me put it this way. They never turned me into the FBI. <laughs> Thank you for sharing all this history. Now I'd like to talk about the moment which we are living. Yes. Um, what do you think today's youth can learn from students from the Democratic Society and the organizers of the 60s and 70s? I used to think that you could learn how to organize by studying successful movements of the past. And it really wouldn't matter which successful movements. For example, you could study the women's movement and find out how they organized, because that's been more or less successful. You could study the gay rights movement. You could study the the student movement uh, uh, during the Vietnam War. You could uh, study the labor movement. You could study a lot of stuff. And there is literature available on how did they organize. I used to think that. Now, I'm not so sure. Because I met 
a young man uh, who was involved with the uh, hashtag Never Again movement, uh, the, the Parkland survivors, David Hogg is his name. Uh, he's one of the survivors. And he personally has 4 million Twitter followers. They called the demonstration uh, for March, um, March for Our Lives, and probably more than a million people turned out. You know, So I think in a general sense, what people can learn is movements don't occur spontaneously. They take organization. They take strategy. They take coalitions between people who are not like each other. These are, these are universals of organizing. Now, how to do that now? Everything's different, you know? Uh, I think the, uh, the uh, social media and uh, the communications technologies that you have available um, are way beyond me. I mean, we, we concentrated on person-to-person organizing. And I, I can't believe that that isn't useful. <laughs> what would you like to see today's youth accomplish in terms of organizing, social justice, etc.? Two things. One is the creation of mass movements, just protests, just action, um, uh, education, just on the issues that are important to you. Uh, for example, global warming. I mean, we better save our planet. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I mean, it, only stupid people would think there is no such thing as global warming. Yeah. And unfortunately, they happen to be the people in power. So I, I would like to see millions of people, starting with right here in Albuquerque, thousands of people uh, marching to demand, uh, for example, an end to extraction of fossil fuels uh, in New Mexico. That's a local issue, especially on, on Native American land. Uh, so I'd like to see young people getting involved in all these important issues, you know? And there's so many of them. Like for another issue, just arbitrarily take one, I believe that we should have free higher education for everybody. That's what, what I would call a social good. It's not a private responsibility, an individual responsibility. It's good for the society to have free higher education. So demand that. Then the second thing is helping to build a movement for power. Now, in our society, we still do have voting. We still have elections. We still have the ability to organize. Now, clearly money dominates, but people can be more important than money. Not only that, but we can have access to money. When, when Bernie Sanders ran for the primary nomination, he raised a quarter of a billion dollars. That's a lot of money, you know? So it's not just it's not just um, um, uh, uh, the, the very wealthy who have money. We 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 can do it ourselves. Um, but 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 building a movement to get the right candidates elected and to vote absolutely. Now, um, voter participation among eighteen to twenty four year olds just about double in this election, two thousand eighteen, uh, compared to a previous off your election, 2014. So that's good. That's great. But we've got to just get so many young people out to vote. So two things, momentum-driven mass movement around issues and related, the movement for political power. Yeah. So next question, how has technology, the internet, social media, cell phones, change organizing? Believe it or not, we used to... um, 
uh, stand on corners with pieces of paper and hand out pieces of paper. They were produced on a, a machine, not even an electric machine. It had a crank oh. <laughs> called a mimeograph. And the mimeograph um, is kind of um, ink is transferred through something called a stencil. Well, a stencil yeah. is a, a, a piece of wax, and you, you cut the wax so the ink gets transferred. Uh, you can use a typewriter. You've probably never seen a typewriter. I have. Oh, you have? <laughs> Without a ribbon to cut the stencil. But to make headlines, you have to use a tool called the stylus. And, and mm-hmm. in other words, it's very primitive. Um, how has things changed? I mean, um, you could put out a, a tweet. And whatever you can do to use using social media or person-to-person contact or events or anything to to engage people yeah. you know to, to help young people understand why this is important you know you have a lot that you're working against like for example uh, all the various forms of entertainment and diversion and the idea of, of getting serious about the world rather than being a child yeah I've thought for a lot about this are you aware that the word teenager, is a relatively new word in the language. It did not always exist. Uh, it came into use uh, right after World War II, about the time I was born. And it described people who were neither kids nor adults, right? Teenagers. They're in between. They're teens. That didn't exist before then. Before that, there were just children, and then there were adults. And the job of of the older children was to study and learn and to work and to learn how to become an adult because that's what adults do is they work. So there there wasn't this in-betweenness of extended adolescence. It it just didn't exist until uh, the word was invented and advertising promoted products to young people. And that's a fairly new phenomenon in the history of the world, you know. So I think my my view is that teenagers have always been involved until recently when we created these this period of time when they were supposed to be divorced from the world, when they were supposed to be like children, right? But before that, teenagers were studying to go into the world as adults because there, there wasn't that in between this. Yeah. So I think it's going to happen again. Mm. I think reality is is probably more interesting than reality TV. Yeah. <laughs> now things are all confused as to what's real and what's not. We have a president who's actually a reality TV star. That's weird. <laughs> you don't find do you, don't you find it weird? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> What is a mass movement, and why is it so difficult to build a mass movement today? Well, the mass movement involves millions of people, yeah. or, or many, many people. Actually, it, uh, in a place like, like New Mexico, for example, let's take fracking. Um, if, if we wanted to stop fracking uh, uh, near Chaco Canyon, which mm-hmm. we do, um, we, we have to get enough people involved whether going to demonstrations, signing petition, calling uh, uh, state legislators, uh, whatever that involvement is, they have to become involved. Now, as it turns out, a, a, a young political scientist at um, 
Denver University, uh, her name is uh, Erica Chenoweth, has figured out that you can win, a mass movement can win with only 3.5% of the population. And I thought about that. I mean, that seems like not a lot of people. But um, 50 years ago, uh, when I was involved in the anti-war movement, for example, uh, the population of the United States was 200 million people. If you calculate 3.5% of that, that's 7 million people. Well, that's about the number of people who were involved in the mass movement. I mean, I don't know, 10 million, 7 million, 5 million, something in there. It wasn't like everybody, right? It was a lot of people who were outspoken, burning draft cards, resisting the war in one, some way or another, like at Columbia, not allowing the university to do research for the war. What I'm saying is that that a mass movement mobilizes many people so to gain a goal. Here in New Mexico, if we mobilize 3.5% of the population, well, our population is 2 million, 3.5% is 70,000. If we could mobilize 70,000 people for a demand like stop fracking at Chaco Canyon or universal higher education free for everybody, we would win. Just getting people involved. That's the mass mm -hmm. movement. That's different from a movement for power because a movement for power has to ha operate through a party and has to have candidates and has to have many, many, many voters. Right. So we're not talking about 70,000 people in the state of New Mexico. We might be talking about half a million people. And it's got to be structured for power. People have to understand how important it is to vote for Deb Haaland, how important it is to vote for uh, Xochitl Torres Small. So those are the, the two kinds of movements that I, li I like to uh, differentiate and think about. What is the most important thing or things that you wish the youth organizers of today knew? It's not going to happen spontaneously. It's going to take organizing. It's going to take leadership. Yeah. Some people, like yourself, are going to have to come forward and say, I suggest this is what we need to do. Mm -hmm. Will you join us? Yeah. And, and will you engage? And um, I, th I think that uh, that's how all, all um, successful social and political movements have worked in the past. And I'm pretty sure that's how it's going to happen again. Now, you have technology, on the other hand. That yeah. allows you to reach a lot of people. David Hogg has four million Twitter followers. Are you on Twitter? Uh, no. No, but but maybe somebody that you know is, yeah. and and that person might be able to uh, to reach thousands of people. What are you learning from the youth? What are you learning from the youth you work with today? I think the youth of today are 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 um, much more able to to bridge gaps like uh, between white and non-white, between uh, men and women and transgender people and, and people of, of various uh, gender uh, uh, identities. You're able to bridge these gaps really well, and I'm trying to learn how to do that. And second, um, I think that social media seems like it's giving you a natural sense of organizing. Do you, do you think that's possible? Or is social media separating people? I, yeah, I, I don't, I, you know, I, I don't have the answer to this, but I do know it's, it's definitely something uh, that I can learn. Yeah. 
I'm 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 only barely on Facebook and I don't enjoy it. And and most of the young people I know don't even use Facebook. They're on Twitter and Instagram and Snapchat. Maybe. Snapchat, yeah, yeah. And 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 they use it in different ways. So well may I ask you a question? Mm-hmm. When I was your age, um, I, I had a, a, an intuitive feel. Uh, I, I was born uh, two years, uh, in 1947, two years after the end of World War II. Uh, but growing up in the 50s and 60s, I had a sense that anything before World War II was, was old and that anything World War II and after was modern, right? And there, has, there had been like a big split. Right. So I guess my question for you is, where's the dividing line now between old and modern? For me, it's probably 2000 because I was born in 2004. Uh-huh. And I just feel, well, the thing is, for me, I don't, I want to learn from the older generation. I want their, uh, what is it called? Um, wisdom, right? That's a good word to use. I want their wisdom so they, I don't make the same mistakes and I can make them better. Oh, I love you. <laughs> I mean, we made so many mistakes, and I sure hope you don't have to go through those. That's why I want to ask you about like lots of stuff with yeah. organ- organizing, because I don't want to make the same mistakes, but I know I will make mistakes. For the newer generation after me, I want to tell them your guys' mistakes, my mistakes, and how they can fix them. I just feel like that's really important for the world to know that, yes, it is old, but they've already gone through it. So you believe in old. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of people are like, are like myself when I was young, um, that old was irrelevant. I don't know. Mm. We'll see. I'm asking the question of the wrong person. <laughs> I've noticed that a lot of people seem to think that anything before the iPhone, and, and which was around 2006, and uh, social media is irrelevant. Really? Well, I got that feeling from talking to David Hogg. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you for letting me interview you. Well, you're welcome. It's uh, Bianca, ever since I've known you, it's been a joy to, to hang out with you. Thank you. This is Generation Justice. I'm Bianca Mitchell.